This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book, and it is number five of our studies in the book of Joshua. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture, and we ask you, if you care to read it with us, that you switch off for a little while while we read Joshua chapters 23 and 24. Well, that was rather a long reading, but I think it gives you first-hand evidence from the man who conducted the expedition and then finally died. There's a solemnity about it because as you read it, you know that all these vows and promises that the people were making, they were soon to be broken. It was almost a repetition of Mount Sinai. Moses came down and said, the Lord is about to make a covenant with you and if you'll only keep his word, you should be a peculiar people unto him. You should be a kingdom of priests. And the people said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses took their words back to God. And before ever he could get down from the mountain with the tables of stone, Aaron, the high priest, had made a calf and they were worshipping a golden image. All these things have been written, friends, not to flatter you and me. We are, we are told by James that there's a certain man who looks into a mirror and goes away and forgets what sort of man he was. But if we look into the word of God, he says, you'll see a picture of yourself. Don't turn away from it too quickly. There's something peculiar about the makeup of man. With all the blessings that God pours down upon him, as he did this people, with all the evidence that he was on their side, they soon departed. I think we must, be, we must be ready to face the fact that there is in this universe, there is in this world, some diabolical form of evil that is taking every ounce of the power of the Almighty God and all the wisdom he has to counteract it. There's no mock theatricals here. There's a war on. And it started before Adam was put in the garden. The very rocks of the earth give evidence of catastrophe. I was amazed to read that up in the Arctic region there is one island there that is made of nothing but smashed up bones of animals, giving you some idea of the chaos that has come over the earth's surface. So, however, we may feel some of the things that are said in this book of Joshua make us revolt and uh, put it side by side with the Sermon on the Mount. And then you can say, does that come from the same God as some people have done? There is no minimising the evil and its consequences that we find embedded in the book and in the outworking of human history. One or two things. I don't know whether you are in uh, possession of your own home, but you know if you are in possession, there are some folks still looking for a place to dwell in. And occasionally you can see an advertisement that says, with vacant possession. But that's never written in the Bible. You'll discover that all the possessions were already occupied by the intruder. You get it over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, that that land was Esau's, but they had to turn out the Zanzumians and inherit them. And this was given to Moab, and they had to do the same. And you see, the story is this, that God called a man named Abraham. 
to come out from his father and his friends and his home and he would show him the land that he would give him. But he wasn't allowed to do that. His father took possession and Terah came out with him and they went about 600 miles up country and they were in the same land as they started from worshipping the same gods that they left behind. That's a denominational move. That's all they did. They changed one denomination for another. And until Terah died, that was the end of that story. But, you're told, they went out to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and stayed there. And then the book goes on to say, and when he did get to Palestine, the Canaanite was already in the land. There was that disobedience that Abraham couldn't counter. There was that interference. And into the land of promise had come the usurper. God said, that's my land, and I've given it to you. And they had to be dispossessed with all the carnage that followed it. Then there's another thing to keep in mind. God said to, Je- to Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. Now I don't understand that fully, do you? All I can see is that there is a term given even to iniquity. And until they reach it, they're given a sort of a length of rope to see what they will do before the judgment descends. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet fallen. And so it was re- reminded you in Joshua's own statement that the children of Israel, they went down to Egypt and didn't inherit their land at first, and then they came back again. Then you will notice another feature, that both the plagues of Egypt and the judgments in Joshua have a lot to do with the gods that were worshipped. The plagues fell upon the gods of Egypt, God said so. The Nile was an object of worship. The sacred bull was an object of worship and other features that are in the plains. And here again, it's these gods worshipping Baal and Ashtaroth and all the abominations that were, were connected with it that had a corrupting influence throughout the world. So, you'll find, I think it is Psalm 136, that psalm which ends with the refrain all the way down, for his mercy endureth forever. He slew great kings for his mercy endureth forever. I don't know whether you hesitate to say that. That's what God says. He said, if you could only see what I can see, it was a mercy to destroy those evil nations, for they were a cancer already in the earth, and it was a surgical operation to rid them. Then you think of how it's been exhibited. David and Goliath, young David and the giant. Or you get Gentile dominion. What's going to happen to the Gentile dominion, of which we form a part, speaking nationally? A stone cut out without hands is going to smash it to pieces so that it's blown like chaff from a threshing floor. God doesn't work halfway, you see. And it looks as though there's nothing for it. Now, you see, the mind of man, your mind and mine, works along this line. Oh, but couldn't we make a sort of little agreement with these people? Couldn't we just live together with them? Couldn't we... Yes, it's going on all the time. The description that I heard just recently, and you've heard it before, of a diplomat, is one who can sit on the fence and have both ears to the ground. (laughs) Well, that diplomacy may get you out of some scrapes, but they may get you into worse ones. And all the diplomacy in the world will never alter the fact that no compromise is possible between light and darkness, good and evil. And you'll discover, when we come to the next book, which we're going to analyse, Book of Judges, 
that the compromise was carried on to such an extent that they nearly destroyed themselves. And then it has a word for you and me. For the Apostle Paul, after having received the wonderful truth that we rejoice in, he said, I know that after my departure, grievous wolves shall enter in, not sparing the flock. So we mustn't say to ourselves, oh well, they were barbaric times then, but it still goes on. The same spirit, the same intrusion, the same arguments, the same uh, parable of the camel, you remember, who put his nose in and then couldn't he put his head in and finally he was all in the tent, you know. Well, so much for that. I thought I would just indicate those features in front before we went further. Well, now we come to an extraordinary passage in the book of Joshua, chapter 10. I'll start reading. Uh, where can I pick it up? Supposing we start reading at verse 11. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. And there were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with a sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajanon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like it, like that day before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. First of all, before we enter into this miracle here, I want to turn to a few other passages. I mean, you might meet a, a genuine Christian person who says, you know, there must be there must be something about that we don't understand. You can't believe that that happened actually like that. That just a man said, and the whole clockwork of the universe is stopped for 24 hours. You see? So, let me ask you to look at one or two passages uh, quickly. Isaiah 13, verse 10. Now we're looking towards the future. Isaiah 13, verse 10. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause a light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and so on and so on. Well, there's the sun, and there's the moon, and there's the stars involved. Well, you can say, well, I don't believe that either. Because that would involve an upsetting of the universe. Or look at chapter 24 of the same prophet. 24 verse 23. 23. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. And then the well-known passage in the prophet Joel which is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. But we'll look at it just after Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Chapter 2, verse 10. The earth shall quake before them, 
and the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, accompanied by these signs in the heavens. And verse 31 of the same chapter. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And then if you go to the prophet Zechariah, which is in the vicinity of this prophet Joel, chapter 14, verse 6 and 7. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that the evening, evening time it shall be light. Now do you understand that? Well I don't. I only can see there's some phenomena here which is extraordinary. Here's another day which is going to be in the calendar of great difficulty to know what to do with it. And so we could go on. Then I want to turn back to one passage in Isaiah before we come back to Joshua. And that is chapter 38. Chapter 38. Verse 8. 38 verse 8. Just before that, Hezekiah. And the prophet is sent to Hezekiah, verse 4. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city. Well that's all right, you say, what's that to do with it? Oh, well I haven't finished. And this shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he hath spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which is gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, Ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees, by which degrees it was gone down. And Hezekiah said as a consequence of being saved, they would sing his songs in the house of the Lord forever, and there are fifteen psalms called the psalms of the degrees. And people have exercised their ingenuity as to what the psalms of the degrees can mean. Well, all the time there's fifteen degrees that are going to be sort of uh, Fifteen years given to Hezekiah, ten degrees on the sundial, and he said, I'm going to write my songs. Now you see, can you believe that the sun would go back ten degrees on a sundial? You see, you see what I'm getting? It's not merely the book of Joshua that's involved. Suppose we put it this way. Do you believe Genesis 1 verse 1? Yes. Well, by believing that, you believe a lot. For surely the miracle of all miracles is to call into existence heaven and earth, to create it. Now, I understand that if a man invents a machine like a motor car, it's not enough for him to be able to say, I can make it go, but you say, friend, can you make it stop? And all our trouble is, we see the clockwork of the universe going, but we don't think God who made it could stop it. 
We are wonderful creatures, aren't we? Why, even I can stop a clock, and it doesn't upset the works, and I can start it again if I wish. Of course you say, but it involves so much. But the whole creation has involved so much. So it seems to me it's all or nothing, friends. And if you are expecting me now to explain the miracle that's recorded in Joshua, well, you're not very wise people. Because if you can explain a miracle, it's no longer a miracle. If I could explain to you what the Lord did and why, he spat upon the ground and he made clay and he put it on a man's eyes and he told him to go to a certain pool and he came back seeing, if I could explain that, it'd be no miracle to me for I'd know how to do it. Don't you see? The very essence of a miracle is you have to believe God who created heaven and earth. He can suspend laws that he's made without asking your opinion. And there's no explanation that I think is possible. I've read a good many explanations with regard to the miracle that's recorded in Joshua. One of them said this. You see, there was a hailstorm and the whole air was full of vapour. And he says, you know that if you had a half a crown at the bottom of a basin and stood back, it would be invisible. Then as you poured water into the basin, slowly the half a crown would come up again, but it doesn't. It's only refraction. That's the answer. Well, it may be. I don't know. But you see, all these things are unnecessary. Then again, some people object to miracles. They, they say they don't happen. Well, I don't think you know very much about life, friends, for they're happening all the time. Not so evident. Have you ever prayed? Have you ever asked God to do something? Well, that's interfering with the cause and effect, because if it's just the same afterwards as before, there's no purpose in prayer, is there? Well, now we come back again then. Here's a day marked off from all time. And I have got one little uh, item here. It's a miracle if I haven't lost it. Oh, I'll add it. it is. That some of you have already seen. Our brother, Mr. Rumsey, had it printed and left it me out for you to pick up about Joshua's long day. Now, I'm the last person on earth to pass any opinion upon reckoning up figures. That's my uh, weak spot. I'd be a most wonderful auditor. I'd make it come different every time. But I'm told that certain astronomers made calculations. They tell you the basis of them and they tell you the result. And this was published. It speaks about the use of the transit of Mercury and Venus. And all I know about that is that at certain times, Venus and Mercury and the Earth come in one straight line and it takes place at periods. And it's a perfect piece of clockwork. That by reckoning from creation onwards, or reckoning the other way around backwards, there's always 24 hours that you can't account for. Well, I'll give you that for what it is worth, friends. It says here, I will read you what Professor Totten writes in his scientific vindication of Joshua's long day. After a long astronomical argument, he says, 
By no possible mathematics can you arrive at the present day, at the present time, without the interpolation of exactly 24 hours. That is to say, if you work back to the winter solstice of Joshua's day, you will find it on a Wednesday. And if you work from creation forward to the winter solstice of Joshua's day, you find it on a Tuesday. Thus, there were 24 hours interpolated into the world's history on that very day. Well, who am I to criticise that because I couldn't count it up if they left it with me? But these were sane men who stood by their reputation and they said, that's what they discovered. Well, I leave it because if it's true, it would leave a mark like that. So we've got now this thought that when you think about the miracles of the scriptures, they are not merely things to wonder at. Now, why should it take place there? Well, you see, the whole of this history of Joshua is an anticipation of the day of the Lord when not Joshua is going to ride, but the king of kings is coming riding forth to make war just the same. And then there will be signs in heaven and earth such as will put this into the shade. So that you see, it's no good saying, well, I can't swallow that. But you've got all the rest. And it involves the second coming of Christ, it involves the gospel according to Matthew, it involves the Acts of the Apostles, it involves the Epistles and the book of the Revelation. They're all committed to there be signs in heaven and earth, wonders, sun, moon and stars, all affected. So I said at the beginning, if anyone can explain a miracle to that particular person, the miracle doesn't exist. I was thinking of another rather, this is coming right down from the sublime to the ridiculous perhaps. But many years ago, when we lived in the country, there was a home for girls who had come from such horrible homes, they weren't allowed to mingle with the rest of Dr. Bernardo's children. They were a terrible crowd. But they adopted our little Sunday school, about 50 of them. And I had a sort of feeling for these poor kids that when Christmas time came round, they would be longing to have something, and although I didn't believe the traditional Christmas, I wasn't going to cheat them. So we arranged a little party for them. And I invented some conjuring tricks. And one of them took everybody in, grown-up people, people who sat in our own drawing room with chairs all round and watched it, and they couldn't see how it was done. My youngest daughter was put into a bolster case, Somebody was elected to tie up the top with a piece of string. The curtain was drawn. We counted 20 seconds. And there was the bolter case still tied up with a piece of string and she walks in the door. Now if I explained how it was done, it would be no longer a trick, would it? But that's only simple, you see. God can do things that are beyond our ability to understand. But he has complete control. I always remember another illustration. Two men sitting out working in the road, as they do sometimes, and it was lunchtime, and they were sitting under a shed, and one was loud-mouthed at. He didn't believe in miracles. That which, you know, goes up must come down. So the other man had his knife, cutting his under bread, and he went like that, and stuck it in the roof of the shed. He said, that's up. That was a human hand that came in and stopped gravity. A mother whose child was getting near the brink of a cliff. It's no good saying to her, my dear woman, gravity must not be interfered with. She says, get out of the way and she grabs her child. That's what God can do. Upset all the laws of nature. 
That's miracle. And the miracles don't come all over the Bible, they come at intervals, when it's necessary. You imagine Moses going back to Pharaoh, and saying to Pharaoh, the Lord has sent me, and says, let my people go. He says, well, how am I going to convince Pharaoh and all those people that I am sent? So the Lord says, well, that's reasonable. What's that in your hand? That's my rod. Cast it down. It became a serpent. Pick it up. It's a rod. Put your hand in your bosom. Take it out. It's leprosy. Cleanse. Serpent is Satan. Leprosy is sin. Go back and do those. Oh, that's reasonable, isn't it? You would expect you to have some sign from God if you're going to make such a claim upon Pharaoh in Egypt. So it's not unreasonable to see. And then our Saviour was born. In Bethlehem. He lived in Nazareth. And Nazareth was a place, about the last place on earth you'd imagine. So they said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So how was he going to convince people? There he was, known as Jesus, the carpenter's son. And he's going to make stupendous claims upon the faith of people. When he shook the whole land, read the fourth chapter of Matthew, from one end to the other, with miracles of healing that staggered the people. Then there was a reaction. Then they began to have second thoughts. But that was necessary that it should be. So he said, don't believe me, believe me for the very work's sake. So did you see, instead of saying a miracle is impossible because it's an intrusion, it's the very thing we must expect if God is going to interfere. The one intrusion demands another. Well, I don't think I can go on very much further with this because I'm simply telling you I don't know anything about it. Only I have to take a long time to say it. And you don't know anything about it. And you've either got to accept that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and miracles as well, or you've got to say, well, I'll cut the miracles out. And then you'd have a Bible that was full of holes and it wouldn't be worth the keeping. The very intervention of God as our salvation is the most stupendous miracle of all. That God himself should condescend to become manifest in the flesh and should stoop to allow men to put a crown of thorns on his head and rods on his back and crucify him. You say, oh, I believe that. And you don't believe miracles. Well, there's something wrong either with your head or your heart, brother, and perhaps a little of each. So don't take that high attitude that only poor little ignorant people believe miracles. But every person who's believed the gospel of the grace of God has that to endorse the mightiest miracle of all. And if God can do that, he can do all the other things that are recorded. Well now we'll take another line to bring our survey of Joshua to a close. And that is this element of mercy that is suggested by the cities of refuge. And I'll go back to the book of Numbers because in the book of Joshua you're told that they did it and in the book of Numbers you're told that they were to do it. So there was a, an obedience to this. This is Numbers chapter 35. Book of Numbers chapter 35. You will notice that there was a green belt arranged for the cities, they were to have suburbs. And that's not the word suburb that we think of, but it was to make a little uh, piece round them. 
Uh, verse 4, And the suburbs of the cities which ye shall give unto the Levites shall reach from the wall of the city and outward a thousand cubits round about, and so on. Then, verse 6, And among the cities which ye shall give unto the Levites, there shall be six cities for refuge. Now this city for refuge arises out of another feature which most of us are aware. On the state of the times when Israel entered the land, they weren't in the same civilized, shall I put it, method of government as we have. That is to say, a good many things had to be done by the person themselves instead of being done by the government. Now, I don't suppose there's anyone sitting in this congregation. Of course, I don't know what you do when you live in the ends of the earth who are listening to me. But I don't suppose you've been, been round your premises with a blunderbuss lately to see that nobody's breaking in. You said, we don't have to do that. The police are there. Yes. But you see, in these times, they had no police. And so there was a clan. And there was a kinship. And there was a recognized responsibility that the one who was next of kin had no option, but he must come to your assistance. And he had a twofold office. He was a redeemer to redeem you from bondage and from debt or from a lost inheritance and he was an avenger of blood. We're going to finish this series on Joshua by Judges and Ruth. And by the time we get to the book of Ruth, we shall have to make a halt to give a more detailed examination of what a kinsman redeemer means. So for the moment, let it wait. But we'll see here the other aspect of the avenger of blood. So we'll go on. These six cities. Among the cities which ye shall give unto the Levites, there shall be six cities for refuge, which ye shall appoint for the manslayer, that he may flee thither, and to them ye shall add forty and two cities. So there were these cities, and it was for the manslayer. Now what does this mean? We'll come a bit further down. Verse 10. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye have become over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then ye shall appoint you cities to be cities of refuge for you, and the slayer may f- that the slayer may flee thither that killeth a person at unawares. And it's given great, um, a great length, this slaying at unawares. If you'll notice, verse 22, but, in contrast to one who meditates murder, but, if he thrust him suddenly without enmity, or hath cast upon him anything without laying a weight, or with any stone wherewith a man may die, seeing seeing him not, and cast it upon him that he die, and was not his enemy, neither sought his arm, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the avenger of blood, according to these judgments. And the congregation shall deliver the slayer out of the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to the city of his refuge, whither he was fled, and he shall abide in it unto the death of the high priest, which was anointed with holy oil. So there was a great concern there on the part of God, not only to destroy the Amorites, but to be sure that a man who by accident had taken the life of another wasn't really accused of murder. And the cities of refuge were placed, as you see, there's a faint map just visible, and they were put on three on one side of Jordan and three on the other. 
They didn't have six in one part so that you've got to get over the Jordan somehow. Three one side, three the other. And the rabbinical law went on with the same spirit and they said that it was a part of their responsibility to keep all roads repaired and all bridges over rivers uh, available. So that the man who was fleeing for refuge should have no obstacle put in his way to be saved from the avenger of blood. Of course, you may say, well, why have an avenger of blood? Well, you may say, why have Old Bailey here? See, we're excused after these things we don't realise. That in those days, the family or the clan had to do the very thing that you now pay a man and you don't even know you pay him to do the job. So be careful when you're criticising Old Testament customs that you don't forget these things. And these cities were given names. You notice, there's one called Kedesh. Now that is the word for holiness. And this God we are thinking about in the book of Joshua, as well as in the New Testament, is not a God of love only. I remember passing once a house where they had meetings, and over the fanlight were the words painted, God is love and nothing else. And I looked at it and I thought, either that's the most sublime truth that anyone can reach, or it's a terrible fraud. Now, I don't know. But I have a feeling that love was a sentimental thing and the idea of a holy God who could not tolerate sin. A God who was not merely concerned that you should be justified. Oh, we're very concerned about that when you read the epistle to the Romans. But don't forget that the epistle to the Romans is concerned that he should be justified. A just one and a justifier of him. And so he sent his son. I was writing to a friend recently because they had a problem with regard to this question. And I said it's a crude illustration, but it may fit. A certain lawyer who had a reputation for inflexible righteousness was suddenly confronted with a problem. His own scapegrace son was up before him. And what was he to do? His affection immediately felt sorry for the son and would have gone great lengths to have let him off. But his consciousness of being a lawyer, a judge and a righteous man knew full well that that couldn't be allowed. And so the judge condemned his son and exacted from him the penalty which was a fine of 500 pounds. Then he took his robes off and as the father he paid the 500 pounds himself. Well, it's a crude story. But you see, the nation would, would immediately say justice was honoured. There was no bypassing the claims of right. Now, that's what God has done. You hear a person taking a line against God because he demanded a bleeding sacrifice before he would forgive his little child. You know, like that. Well, then you just ask the question, and friend, who provided the bleeding sacrifice? Well, the very one against whom the whole offence was made. God alone provided the sac sacrifice. God alone demanded it. He demanded it of none of us. So the fleeing for refuge was no covering up of sin. He was going to a city that was called holy. Do you remember that, friends? When you flee for refuge, 
and take refuge beneath the cross of Jesus. It's no mere sentiment. The cross of Jesus is a gallows, a place where criminals are are executed. And to the Jew, dying on a tree was to be under the curse of a broken law. Oh yes, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, but no mere sentiment. Holiness is there exhibited and honoured. Well then you come to the other one. The other one on this side is called Shechem, which means a shoulder. And the shoulder can mean two things, at least in its typical meaning. Here the government shall be upon his shoulder. Here is a ruler. And that ruler is a righteous one. And also, on the shoulder of the high priest was engraved in stone the twelve tribes of Israel. So that he never in the high priestly garments, was was without the fact that he bore them on his shoulder. So here again is what is behind the refuge that is open for you and for me. And then we have the um, Hebron, in the first case means a ford, a place that you can cross over. And this psalm, uh, what is that, psalm 141, Verse 10, let's have a look and see what that says. Psalm 141, verse 10. Oh yes. Let the wicked fall into their own nets, whilst that I withal escape. Now that um, word is this similar word that we're dealing with. This refuge that the Lord has made for his people. In the margin, if you have a margin in your Bible, the word is pass over. While I pass over. And the river lies between. Between me and my enemy. You know why the word rival is so called? Because a river was that which divided between two conflicting parties. They were rivals living on the river edge, and he divided them. And Abraham was called a Hebrew. Can you hear the word Hebron? He was called a Hebrew because he crossed over after his old man was dead. I'm not being rude. Tirah was old, and he died, and he represents the old man who can be religious and get nowhere but a hindrance. And when Tirah was dead... Abraham became the Hebrew and crossed over into the land of promise. So there we've got that thought. Then the other side, we have, on that side we have Golan. And that means to roll. And you see, commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him. And if you look at the margin of your Bible, roll your way in the direction of the Lord. And he'll look after the rest of it. Once I'm working out, but there it is. And then, Ramoth, high, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. All these cities of refuge have got wonderful names when you begin to associate them with the teaching of Scripture. And then the stronghold, Beza, it is strong. I've got there from the epistle to the Hebrews, <coughs> flee for refuge, Tatafugo. And if you ever listen to Bach, you wonder whether he's ever going to get there when he plays his fugues. They go one after the other. A fugue is a piece of music chasing itself. Have you listened to him? 
And you only know it's coming to an end when the orchestra slows up. But there is an end here, friends. This is fleeing for refuge. Our word refuge, fugitive, is one who is fleeing. But isn't it good to know that God has provided a refuge? And we have the eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Well now there's a very complicated passage to explain in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, 27 and 28. I think we've just about time to look at that. And um, it gives a little bit different idea from what it appears on the surface. Hebrews 9, the last two verses. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now can you see the connection between as it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered. Well, we take it for granted. But there is a reference here to this city of refuge and the law. That the man who fled for refuge, he must stay there in that city until the death of the high priest at that time. And when the high priest is dead, he goes out free. And the very word, judgment, after this, the judgment, is not the judgment upon the man as a sinner. But there's judgment pronounced by the congregated elders of the city that this man now can go free. You go back to Numbers 35, 12. And you see the structure if you put the words down in their order. As, so also. So this must be something that's a, a figure. As, so. As the men die once. And then there's judgment. So also Christ once offered. And there's salvation. Who's the men that die? The high priest. And then Christ the high priest, when he dies, but blessed be God, he was raised again and carries on where these others failed. All the way through Hebrews, there's a contrast between Christ and his priestly work. They're not uh, allowed to continue by reason of death, but this man, he ever lives. But I said it was a difficult passage, and I've only just ventilated it. So this evening, you see, there are two things that will be held up against me, judged by my own words. That I can't explain a miracle, and I don't quite know how to explain Hebrews 9, the last two verses. Except that by looking at them carefully and balancing it with these story of the cities of refuge, you see that those who were Hebrews would understand what the Apostle was speaking about. But you needn't worry. You can still fly to this refuge, friends, even though you never read the epistle to the Hebrews. And if you've never fled, well, don't wait too long. Don't wait till you can understand how it was that Joshua could say to the son, stand now still, or whether the sun really did stand still, or whether it was a, a icy spots in the atmosphere that made it stand still. He said, don't you worry about that. You know, there's some people I've met, you almost believe that they're never going to heaven because they don't know Cain's wife. Have you met them? One man said, after he listened to the wonderful parable of the prodigal son, where that son comes back and is taken by the father. And it's the father who runs and not the son. What a wonderful picture of a reception. And he slew the fatted calf. 
And then one of these in the crowd said, well, was the calf a male or a female, sir? Oh, he said it was a female. He said, how do you know that? He says, I'm talking to the male now. Well, that's sometimes the only answer you can answer a fool according to his funny. Well, I don't know what you feel, but I've done the best I can with a tremendously difficult book. I don't think I would serve you in this meeting or in those who listen to these tapes if I'd gone and taken 24 evenings on 24 chapters of the book of Joshua. That's not to say it's not true, but there must be some element of proportion. Now, I feel that if I stop and go into the New Testament, I should be wrong. So I'm going to make a plunge and have about three or four meetings only devoted to the book of Judges, because I have a feeling that if any amount of folks who are listening to me who have got the very smallest idea of what the Judges is about, and then I know full well I shan't be able to stop, but I'll have to say, look, with all the terrible history that you read in the book of Judges, enough to curdle your blood, that gem of faithfulness is lifted out the book of Ruth. And it's a Moabitess that's got all the faith and the love in the midst of that terrible generation. And then, after that, we go back to a New Testament study. I trust even better equipped for New Testament grace and mercy by the very fact that we've been going through some of these difficult passages.